ahead and take your Bible then with me and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be this morning as we process, continue to process through first the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul letter, Paul's letter to, to the Corinthians. Last week we spent some time thinking through 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 10 through chapter 2 verse 5 and that's where we're going to be again this morning considering Paul's argument how he builds and and moves forward this argument of unity in the local church but also then how he uh, understands the glory of God and what's what's communicated communicated there Remember last week, our two main points were that, uh, that, the, God, or that the boasting of mankind, of, of humankind, is excluded because of the unity that is, is brought about through the truth of the gospel. So last week, we saw that the Corinthians were fractured by factions when they should have been united by the gospel. And Paul tells them that they need to agree, that they need to agree not on everything, but they need to agree on what the most important thing is. And that's the truth of the gospel. What is the most important thing in the life of any local church? It is the truth of who God is, the truth of of the gospel as made known to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this reality that they needed to be united, although they were fractured by faction, really leads Paul to write what we see in verse 10. And we'll read this in a moment. But he commands them in that text to to agree, to have no divisions among them, to be united and to have the same mind and same judgment. And these factions seem to have formed around, for the church in Corinth, they seem to have formed around the idea of, seem to form around the idea of baptism. And Paul says, well, baptism is important, that he wasn't sent to baptize. In verse 17, you'll see this, for he said he wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, let the cross be emptied of its power. And that kind of sets up where we're going to go this morning in chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians. So let me read this text for us, beginning in verse 10, and I'll read through chapter 2, verse 5. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ, writes to the church in Corinth, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there was quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean that is each one of you is saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that none, no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of cross is a folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will afford. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. 
but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Have you ever heard someone so persuasive that they made even the worst of ideas sound really good? Our kids do this all of, all of the time. Abel, our oldest, he's five, and Tev, our second, is four. And oftentimes, Abel knows just exactly what to say to Tev to get him to do that in, insane thing. Climb up something or jump off something. Um, Abel knows how to move him, or move him in the right direction. Something that Abel himself would never do, but something that Tev is already inclined to do, but just needs, he might have a second thought, but he just needs that little extra prompting to get him to go over the edge and get him to a place where he's going to, to seriously hurt himself oftentimes. And I think we as people are oftentimes prone to look to be compelled before we take action. And oftentimes we're looking to be compelled by something that is, is, is personally positive. It finds us putting ourselves in a place where, where we find ourselves at the center And that usually compels us to action. A personally positive message typically compels us to move towards towards action. But Paul, in this text this morning, as we're going to look, we're going to focus a little bit on verses 17 through 25 in that text that I read. But Paul warns against that line of thinking when it comes to the truth of the gospel. He says, Yes, he reminds them the gospel unites, but he also wants to point out to the Corinthians that the gospel was not an easy message to digest. It was in no way an easy message to digest. So one thing that we observe very clearly here, and this is going to be our main point this morning in this this text, I'm just going to give you one. The gospel demands a response. The gospel demands a response. Now, Paul immediately gives two characteristics of the gospel. We looked at some of these last week, but, but these, are, these are a little bit fresh. There's a fresh perspective on what Paul is saying. So if we get to, we read verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross be empty of his power. But then we get to verse 18, and he says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
And so there are two characteristics here that Paul points out. He says it is foolishness and it is the the power of God. Now how can those two be reconciled? What does he mean? Well, to whom is the gospel foolishness? He says it very clearly. To those who are perishing, to those who are dying, to those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And to whom is it is the power of God? Those who are being saved. So how do we see the gospel from where we stand? Friends, if we are being saved, like Paul says, the gospel is the power of God, an immense gift of great beauty given to us in Christ Jesus. And the most beautiful truth in all of the world, that is what the gospel is to those who are being saved, to those who have been made alive. However, for those who are perishing, and Paul means those who have not trusted Jesus, those are the ones who are perishing. He says that the gospel is foolishness. Why? Why is the gospel foolishness? Why are you saying that, Paul? He means, he means it lines up with no human wisdom. It's completely offensive. And oftentimes we gloss over this because we just start talking about the gospel and we assign it this word, but we don't actually think about the act that was tied to it. And if you think about it, it does seem absolutely absurd. God himself sent his son to condescend to earth to, to die. The second person of the Trinity came to the earth to die. God himself, Jesus, fully God and fully man, came to earth to die. And this is why Paul says very clearly, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. What is it? It's a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. Folly to the Gentiles because it makes no sense. The Greeks sought wisdom, right? They, they thought the, the way to eternal life was through a higher ascent of thinking. And the Jews sought signs. They sought a king who would come and deliver them from the political oppression that they found themselves in. And so if the king were to come and the king were to die, of what benefit was it to them? That is a stumbling block, but that is exactly what happens. And just the fact that God himself would come to dwell among his creation makes little to no sense. He, he is, the second person of the Trinity, is the word of God by which everything was created. That's an offensive thought just to start. And again, we gloss over it like it's, it's nothing. But even as we're in the second week of Advent, and as we're moving towards, towards Christmas and remembering Jesus coming to earth to die for our, our sin... Even as we're moving towards Christmas, we think to ourselves, this is bonkers. Why would God himself come to earth and make his home even for a short time among simple creatures? And not only that, but to die. And not only that, but to die for them. To suggest that God can die is incredibly offensive. To suggest that the king would bring about restoration of God's people by dying, totally absurd. Now you might say, well, yes, but he's alive now. Absolutely, but is that not an absurd thought also? To worldly wisdom is not the resurrection the strangest concept? Dead things don't come back to life. But this is exactly, exactly 
absolutely the entire premise of the Christian faith. The entire premise of the Christian faith is that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came to earth and lived amongst creatures in order that he might die so that they might be restored to right relationship with God. And again, that they might live, that he might be raised so that they might live with him for eternity. The long-awaited king died to pay for our sin and then he rose again to defeat death. And the world looks at that and says, and you may have even heard this if you shared the gospel with someone before, the world looks at that and says, there's got to be a better way. There has got to be a better way. Think about how many things people go to deal with guilt. They turn to all sorts of things in their lives. They try to justify their sinful actions. They say, yes, I'm not that bad, or at least I'm not doing this or that, or that person will get over it if I act out against them. I'm only human. My actions aren't really hurting anyone. Or they look to other people to tell them it'll be okay. Or they simply ignore the realities of sin in their life and self-medicate with whatever they can get their hands on. And time after time, their guilt comes back because what they trust to take away their guilt cannot perform. It can't actually deal with that guilt. And it seems like at first glance the most ridiculous thing. How can a blood-soaked cross where the king died, God's son, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man, how can that blood-stained cross pay for the sin that made you guilty? We, we hang crosses around our necks or tattoo them on our arms in our, in our culture. And it's kind of a nice, according to our culture, it's kind of a symbol of what you believe. But friends, the cross, and what Paul is arguing here, is that the cross is the the single most offensive symbol in the history of the world. We've sanitized the cross And it hangs around our necks in gold or is displayed beautifully on the top of a church building. But friends, it is a symbol of execution. Jesus was brutally murdered. It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And a Roman execution tool in our culture has become an acceptable symbol of which one that we garnish our bodies with. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't wear a necklace. Go ahead. That's That's wonderful if it reminds you of the truth of what that that cross represents. But Paul says to the Corinthians that he came to, not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he says, not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And so the question is, based on, has it become a culturally acceptable symbol and thereby emptied of of its power? Have we sanitized it? Have we cast it in gold and other precious metals and thereby forgotten that it means that our sin held Jesus there, a blood and water poured from his side to cleanse us from our sin. But even though we have been cleansed from our sin, we should not seek to cleanse the cross of the sheer brutality that it represents. I I, I once heard a... I once heard a, someone say this, and I, I could not find the quote for the life of me. I thought I knew exactly where it was and couldn't find it. So this is not original to me, but, but this idea. 
We hang crosses around our necks to display to the world that we are followers of Jesus when the true test of discipleship comes not what hangs around our neck, but what is on our back. I'm saying this based on what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, where Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The cross needs to go on our back. And when people have difficulties in their life, they say something like, it's just my cross to bear. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that you must die to self and you must die to your sin. And that is the mark of a true follower of Jesus. If, you, if the cross is simply a symbol of our allegiance to a culturally sanitized symbol of religion or religious thought, then it will, in fact, friends, stay around our necks. If you see the cross as a place where your sin held God's son as his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sin, and that picture is nothing short of offensive, you will joyfully and gratefully take up your cross and follow Jesus into self-denial and humility. Friends, that is the, literally the most offensive thing that I can tell you this morning. The root of your sin is your pride and self-indulgence and the antidote is an offensive tool of execution that hosted the only event that could make us right with God. To the world, that is utter foolishness and you may even be here this morning and saying, that is utter stupidity. But the true gospel, the word of the cross, it demands a response. If you have heard the gospel in the reality of the truth, that it took a sacrifice of God's own son to pay for your sin. It demands a response. You cannot remain on the fence. Matt Chandler says it like this in his book, The Explicit Gospel. Jesus puts it simply, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The gospel is such power that it necessitates reaction. Jesus Christ has worked such an outrageous wonder that he demands response, whether hatred or passion. Anyone ambivalent about what Christ has actually done just isn't clear to the facts. To present the gospel, then, is to place a hearer in an untenable position. The heart of the hearer of the gospel must move either towards Christ or away from him. This is the reality of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians here. This is the reality of what Paul is stating. If you're dying, the gospel is utter foolishness. But if you are being saved, it is the most beautiful and glorious truth that has ever existed in all of the world. And God's goal in setting these, the, the things up in this way is for one reason, for his glory. If you look at verse 21 with me, Paul writes this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those believe, to believe who believe. It is the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God. It pleased God. Why? In the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God. We do not know God through our own devices. 
We do not know God through our own intuitions. We know God because God reveals himself to us through the truth of the gospel and awakens our hearts to that reality. Therefore, when the gospel went out to the world, the world said, according to logic, this makes no sense, and yet still responded in repentance and faith. Early in the book of Acts, we see Peter get up and preach this sermon right after the apostles received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He gets up and preaches this sermon, and he basically tells them, you killed Jesus, and 3,000 people were saved. It pleased God through the folly of what he preached to save those who believed. What appeared to be folly to those who were receiving the gospel, that bloody cross, God's son coming to earth to die to redeem people. Through that message, it appeared so foolish. It proved to have the power to restore dead things to life. People who fully represented what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, when he says, but God being rich in mercy with the great love, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So the gospel came to all of us and it demanded a response. If you're not compelled to to respond either one way or the other, to reject it as utter foolishness, or to accept it as complete and utter truth, you have not heard the true gospel. So the gospel came to us and we all demanded a response and so we responded. We say, that is foolishness. And we prove ourselves dead or we say, say, I'm alive. The gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. So how is God glorified in all of this? How is God glorified in all of this? Because it's his work. Only God's work in our hearts can make us alive which comes through the receiving and responding to the gospel message. Boasting is excluded. Paul says it. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Consider your calling. Consider your calling. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Now many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, so that, in order that, no human being may boast in the presence of God. Friends, this morning, that is our posture. It says those who were not powerful according to the worldly standards, were not wise according to worldly standards, were not of noble birth according to worldly standards, but come to God humbly and understand that it is only through his power, through the power of the gospel, that we are made right with him. When we are unified by the gospel, boasting is excluded. And when the gospel is not sanitized, or reduced, boasting is excluded. Paul is saying that there is no way we would believe without the power of the gospel taking hold because the power of the gospel takes hold. The message is complete and utter foolishness to the world. So let me give you a couple of thoughts in conclusion this morning. A couple of thoughts. First thing comes from what Paul says to the church in Rome when he writes in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, 
that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, first of all, for us this morning, do not be ashamed by the gospel. Do not be ashamed by the gospel. It's not your eloquent words of wisdom when presenting the gospel to an unbelieving coworker or friend or neighbor or family member. It's not your eloquent words of wisdom that is going to persuade them into believing, but the power of God demonstrated in the gospel. That is the only way. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is saying to every person who has ever existed, now they can receive the truth of, of who God is by faith. And the gospel is good news that Jesus came to pay for our sin, that our sin can be forgiven in order that our relationship with God can be reestablished and we can spend eternity with him in everlasting joy. But it came at, at a great cost and it demands all of us. Costless Christianity, that Christianity that does not take into account Matthew chapter 16, 24, and 25 where Jesus tells his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. Costless Christianity says you're saved now. Do whatever you want. True Christianity says you're saved now do what God intended. Many crosses Christians have been made over the ages because people were ashamed of the gospel and sanitized it and reduced it. They diluted the seriousness of sin because it was offensive. They downplayed God's wrath set against those who are in sin because it was offensive. They downplayed the fact that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus in our place because it was offensive. They sanitized a bloody cross because it was offensive. These are all topics we do not like if we subscribe to worldly wisdom. They have been called cosmic child abuse, divine injustice. But for us who are being saved, these are glorious truths that govern our whole life. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. And when you have those opportunities to share the gospel with unbelieving coworkers, friends, neighbors, classmates, do so boldly. Again, your eloquent words of wisdom will not save them. The power of God can. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Second thing that I would say, this is incredible. The second thing that I would say, you see this in this text, this is amazing. Seek the wisdom of God. This text clearly says to us that we can know God and that he can give us his wisdom. It's not the wisdom that the world offers, but it's the wisdom that God offers. We have this amazing genre in the Bible called wisdom literature. Like Proverbs, if you read the book of Proverbs, or even in the New Testament, the book of James. And even in the book of James, in, the, in chapter 1, verse 5, James says to his readers, he says very clearly, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and what? It will be given to him. God will give you godly wisdom if you ask. And, and I'm convinced I'm convinced, that a verse that comes up very frequently for us, I'm convinced that Paul, I'm convinced that Paul, when he thinks about wisdom, 
had what he wrote to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 2 in, in view. When he said, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Have you ever considered the fact that you are always being formed by something? You are always being formed by something. Circumstances in your life, things that you read, things that we watch on Netflix. We are always being formed. We call childhood and early adulthood formative years. And the Bible is all about our formation as a people. And in fact, I think even the corporate worship gathering is, is meant to form us as people as we come together and sing the praises of our Most High God, as we read Scripture together, as we hear the Word preached. It's all about our formation as a people. My, my own personal philosophy of how I prepare a sermon comes from the ideas in Romans 12 too. And I wrote this out a while ago just because it helped me when I sat down to begin to prepare a sermon for a Sunday morning about the ideas of formation that come through the words. It helps me not be flippant or approach the text in a, in a condescending or read into it type manner. But this is my own philosophy. Preaching is about the formation of a believer. It informs the deformation and malformation that have come as a result of being conformed to the world and aims to apply the word so that transformation may occur by the reforming of the mind. See how there's form words in there? This is all about formation, being formed by the proper things, being formed by the word of God. So we're pointing out, we're informing what we get wrong in the deformation and malformation because we're influenced by the world and the confirmation of the world and, and, and applying what scripture says in the reformation of our minds and acknowledging that the Spirit's operation to make us more like Christ, which is transformation. All of those things are, need to be happening in our lives with regularity as we go to God's word and as we hear the word preached and wherever we find ourselves through the course of the week. We're being formed by something, friends. Make it the word of God that forms you first. I love what Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do, not be, do, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. God's wisdom comes through a reformed or renewed mind, formed again or made new again in what God intended for you. And so when Paul writes that in, in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. He's saying that is what godly wisdom looks like. But then in verse 5, he tells us exactly how that happens. He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In Christ, as those who have trusted Jesus, as those who believe that he is the one who paid the penalty for our sin, this truth right here is that we have the mind of Christ. It has been given to us, and wisdom has been given to those who ask for it. And if we're unable to do Philippians 2, 3, and 4... All we need to do is seek the wisdom of God and ask. The mind that we are to have as followers of Jesus is given to us in Jesus when we are joined with him. 
This is a renewed mind. This is a reformed mind. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 12 too. The mind of Christ, the mind that we are given in Christ, based on what Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 5, the mind that is given to us in Christ was not malformed, was not deformed. Christ is without sin. He was sinless. And that mind can, can be ours. And friends, we ask, how do I get that? James chapter 1 verse 5, you ask. You just ask. Jesus said it, Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give, give good things to those who ask him? Can you think of a better thing to have than the mind of Christ? The wisdom of God, not money or material or status. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a renewed mind. A mind that is not malformed or deformed because of sin, but is a mind that seeks God and that is able to discern what is good and acceptable to him. Final thought I would give you this morning. If Jesus is your treasure and, and our treasure together collectively as a body, Buffalo City Church, if Jesus is our, our, our treasure, we, you, we, will not sanitize or reduce the gospel and you and I will not boast. Our society tells us that we are the treasure. It tells us to put yourself in the center of your life, or maybe something else. But it is Jesus who is our treasure. Make Jesus your treasure. Spend time in God's word. It's how he tells us. It's how It all points to him. Spend time with God's people. They're the ones he has called his friends. Spend time speaking the excellencies of Jesus to those who don't know. They are the, those who came to redeem. Make Jesus your treasure and you will, you will bring God glory. That's what this text is about. It's about doing what we were intended to do. The primary goal of mankind as God created us was to bring him glory and to enjoy him. Friends, we get little glimpses of that every single day. We get to participate in the things that he has created for us to participate in. We get to know him through little situations in our lives that may seem completely benign but are intended by God to bring about incredible transformation in our hearts and minds. Friends, we desire to glorify God. And we bring him glory most when we acknowledge that he is the one who has the power to save us and him alone.